The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes. You know, Threshold Choir isn't gonna take a blood pressure or give them a pill or they're just gonna be. It's the ministry of presence. The families and the patients can just be and receive whatever that moment is for them that the Threshold Choir has ushered in. Hi, Beth. That was Tammy Clark, volunteer coordinator for Mercy Hospital in Springfield, Ohio, talking about Threshold Choirs and the service they provide for people as they approach death. Today, we're going to hear about the Threshold Choir movement and talk to its founder, Kate Munger. Hi, John. I'm excited to learn more about Threshold Choirs. As someone who's in pastoral ministry for 25 years and who sat by many bedsides with loved ones who are near death, I know how sacred that time can be. We'll also be meeting Linda Griffith and Abby Cobb, who are veteran members of Threshold Choirs, who will share how being a choir member has impacted their lives. Let's start out by telling me how the organization got started. In November of 1990, I was asked to stand in a volunteer slot for a friend who was dying of HIV AIDS. I was told to sit by his bedside. And when I got there, he was comatose and also agitated, which was a tough combination. And I was terrified. So what I did at that time, well, I've always done, uh, which is sing uh, to calm myself down. And I sang for Larry for two and a half hours, and I sang the same song over and over for that two and a half hours. And as soon as I started singing, he got calmer. And as soon as he got calmer, I got calmer. And by the end of that time, I was in an altered state. <laughs> And I had some deep awarenesses. One, that singing for someone who was dying made perfect sense to me. It seems like something that our culture has lost. And it felt like I was giving him the best gift I could give him personally. And it felt like I had been given a gift of understanding that this work, this service of singing at bedsides, was something that I could take on and share and grow. And 10 years later, I started the first two threshold choirs in my county of Marin County in California. So when you started the first choir, how did you go about it? I gathered singers and started creating a repertoire of singing at bedsides and started developing ideas about how to sing at bedsides. And early on, the idea of singing in a blend where three voices create a situation where the sound is prayerful, not religious, but prayerful, and all the voices are equally balanced. And we met twice a week for two and a half hours. And after about a year, when singers felt confident and felt like they'd done their homework personally about death, and were prepared to bring that consciousness of normalizing and honoring death as a feature of life to bedsides. 
by 2008, there might have been 100 choirs around the world, mostly in the United States, but the first choirs that started outside the U.S. were in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Cambodia, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Tell me what makes a good threshold choir song. What makes a good threshold choir song is that it's short, text-wise, not very complicated lyrics, repetitive, and then the delivery is gentle and soft. And the song can be sung either with words or hummed or oo on an oo syllable. I hope that what happens after I die is something like a song. And to me, a song, it's a thing, it's a noun, but it's colorless, weightless, how it even exists is kind of miraculous. And to me, we're offering a place for someone's awareness to rest as they are approaching their death. And listening is as important a skill for this kind of singing as the actual sound production. I also say, think about a mother singing a lullaby to a baby. You know, do you have to have a perfect voice for that? It's important to be able to carry a tune. It's important to be able to make your voice sound kind. For the kind of singing we do, to be able to blend your voice, to be able to say, this isn't a moment for my ego. This is a moment for reverence. And look at this situation that I'm in. There is somebody here who's about to take their last breath. What an honor that is. You sing the song through once, just the melody, and then all of a sudden the second verse starts and the harmonies begin. And something really visceral happens to you. And it, I, to me, it brings tears to my eyes. And there's something deeply human about going from unison voice to harmony. I really feel like denominations or, you know, religious organizations often take care of their parishioners just fine in terms of ministering to them in the language and in the form that they understand. I feel that people who are spiritual but not necessarily religious are left out of that kind of pastoral care. We are hoping to be able to sing for people who want to feel that they're part of nature and that they don't have to be religious in order to have a peaceful death. How many people go to a bedside? 
three, sometimes two, sometimes four, but mostly okay. three, partly because our songs are mostly in three. You know, there's a tune and a high harmony and a low harmony. Um, if there's four people, then often it will be a newer singer singing the tune, being matched by an experienced singer also singing the tune, and then the harmony parts. So that it's a way to bring somebody who's new to it into the experience. Do you have any favorite anecdotes about how you saw it impacted somebody? First one that always comes to mind, we were singing for a famous Latin percussion leader. His child lived 19 days, and on the 17th day, we were invited to come and sing. It was clear this child was not going to live. And we arrived, and the mother and father and both sets of grandparents were around this tiny little bassinet with this tiny infant. And we got to the end, and the father said, do you have any songs for the baby's grandmother? She's Irish. And that very day, a choir member had written a song that was not technically Irish, but it sounded Irish. And we sang that song, and the last line is, may you find all the love that you needed was here. And... I've seen the dad many times, and he and his wife have gone on to have other children, and they said that that line, it helped them reconsider their daughter's life, that rather than measure it in days and hours, they were measuring it in love given and received, and it really helped. It really helped. I've heard the songs online and on your CDs. Are they ever used as an alternative to in-person singing? You could, and I hope people do, especially nowadays, because we aren't singing at bedsides now. But you would miss a whole big piece of the experience. To be bathed in that vibration, your whole body is really different than hearing it from a boombox. And plus, you don't get the sensitivity that human beings bring to the singing in terms of what song is appropriate at that moment? How long to sing that song? How much silence to wait in between the songs? Our singers work a long time to become sensitive, to tiptoe into a room, assess a situation, figure out how to start, figure out how long to sing, and then wisp out without ruffling the wind. And you don't get that from a mechanical source. What do family members tend to do? Do they join in or do they just quietly sit there? They do any, any and all of those reactions. They most always weep quietly, tears rolling down their cheeks. We encourage them to sing, and that's one of the reasons that the songs are short and repetitive and sung by amateurs, people who do it for love. We love it when they sing with us. We love that, and we hope that if they sing with us when we're there, that they'll also sing while we're not there. Because way too often, I think, 
the death of a family member means scurrying around and making brownies and tuna casserole and dusting and making sure everything's clean, where really what they should be doing is sitting quietly by this person's bedside and reading the poetry from their childhood that they remember or singing songs from car trips or meditating. There's just an awful lot of hustle and bustle that isn't necessary at the end of someone's life. Now, let's hear about Linda Griffith and Abby Cobb's experience as Threshold Choir members. Just tell me the story of how you first heard of Threshold Choir and how you got involved. One day, I think it was May of 2007, I saw a small notice that said, if you're a woman who likes to sing, come down to the Unitarian Fellowship on Friday evening, no experience necessary. I didn't know who would be there. I didn't know if I'd know anybody. And there was a large circle of women. Kate Munger was there. And Kate said these amazing things like, if you don't read music, don't worry. If you are not sure about your voice, just lean in next to the woman next to you. And they were these beautiful songs. We sang, I don't know, four or five songs. But the songs were simple. They were heartfelt. And I literally had a sensation in the middle of my chest of melting and just sort of this melting and softening, and it was so wonderful. Linda, tell me your story, because you didn't get involved at the same time, right? I came across a YouTube video of Kate Munger singing to someone who was, who was dying. And my heart leapt thinking, oh my gosh, I, I could do that. Isn't that beautiful? Several years later, I similarly was reading, and there was a little blurb that said, Kate Munger is going to be here doing a workshop on Threshold Choir. And I couldn't believe it. I was so thrilled and so grateful. I signed right up and uh, went to the session not knowing anyone. And the singing has been meaningful to me on a bunch of levels, just spiritually, physically, and the connections that we made with each other. Abby, you referred to the fact that you don't feel like you're a great singer, or you don't have to be a great singer, but you were asked to lean in. Can you explain how that was helpful to you? So I would say right now in our threshold circle, we have some women like Linda who love to sing harmonies, who help us find the pitch and get started. We have other women who only sing the melody, but we recognize that there is more that is given, more than the song, and more than our technical singing ability. After singing to someone who is in that very receptive state and is perhaps in pain, perhaps already beginning the dying process, there's something that we receive back that's hard to put into words, but it opens our own spirits, our own hearts to other dimensions so there's an energy exchange that happens that's more than our voices. 
Is there a learning process in terms of when you first get involved, adapting to what's proper behavior? Yes, it is processed over time, and we accept new members, but we don't necessarily take them to the bedside right away until they've had uh, at least somewhat of the process. And we'll give each other feedback about how, well, you know, I think if the two of you were each closer to the person's ears, or if, you know, if you could sing a little more softly because your partner was singing more softly. And then, so gradually we learn that leaning in process to really be sensitive to what we're offering because we're offering it together, whichever two or three of us are singing to a particular person. It would be very easy, I think, if you had not done any reflecting and unexpectedly this person that you expected to sing to several times in the next few weeks dies right there or then we don't want it to become about us and surely we're not automatons so we would certainly be touched and have emotions but we would want the focus to be on the individual that we're singing to in fact there was a time where kate encouraged us to actually touch knees to the that two singers would be physically connected and that we might have this energy exchange even better. So much has changed, of course, with the pandemic and not meeting in person with each other or with people that we're singing to. What's it like with the family members? How do they react? We always are very sensitive to making sure that the individuals there who are present in the room understand what it is we're doing and they are welcome to just sit there and observe and participate that way, or uh, many of them will, especially if we have a repetitive place where we go every week to sing to someone in the last six months of their life, uh, the family members may learn the songs and actually sing quietly along with us as well. Have you ever participated in writing a song? I think I heard Kate say at a recent workshop a year or two ago that there are so many songs and choirs across the country and around the world that she encourages each choir to have their own personal, local repertoire as well. Some of the songs now um, will reflect Judaism values, and we have some that we're translating into Spanish. And so it comes from all sorts of venues, but we like to say they're spiritual but not religious. It's almost hypnotic, I think. Tell me, being part of this activity over years, how has it impacted your own perception of dying? When you asked that question, Eric, I paused and the words to one of our songs came to me. We walk not into the night. We walk but toward the stars. That's the whole song. But, uh, you know, of course, as human beings, as creatures, we have fear of death, of stopping breathing, our hearts not beating. But we, I think, all have now, partly from the Threshold Choir, this vision of walking towards the stars, not struggling in the dark, but walking towards the stars in, in whatever, in all the many meanings that might have. Yeah, I would say in response to your question as well, Eric, that participating in this has certainly reduced any fear I would have or might have had before. There's just more of a sense of 
calmness and moving on about it. I open my heart in this moment. I open my heart and receive all. Do you have any other comments that we haven't talked about? Wanted to say about that song, In This Moment I Open My Heart. I have sung that to myself a great deal when I'm driving to a stressful situation. And actually, one night six years ago, I broke my leg. I slipped on the ice and I broke my ankle, the two leg bones breaking in three places. And I had actually been at a choir practice. And I was singing that song to to myself in the car on the way to the hospital to calm myself. As a nurse, I I could tell I was going into shock, and I was trying to stabilize myself by singing. In this moment, I open my heart. And when I got to the emergency room, they had to put me under to set my leg. And after I came to from the anesthesia, having my legs set, the doctor said to me, you know, you were singing that whole time. And I said, I bet I was. It's been a beautiful thing about this practice, too, that I think it has affected me personally, such that I am more calm. I'm more peaceful. I have more of a sense of being enough, being adequate to whatever the situation calls for. And I would say that's a common experience, a tangible felt shift over many years of singing that the songs become part of us and they appear in our minds sometimes in a variety of circumstances and they're often just the right song for the occasion without us realizing why and would you like to finish with sending you light let's do that i am sending you light to In our next episode, we'll meet Dr. Robert Applebaum of the Scripps Gerontology Center at Miami University of Ohio. Dr. Applebaum is going to share information on trends, legal issues, and how to navigate the challenges of assisted living and long-term care. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation, Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative, and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Delmar Fellow Eric Johnson.